In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. So much has happened in this world of ours, Lord, over the last couple of months. For one, we are dealing with a virus. We are dealing with a deadly virus, a virus which is called Corona, COVID-19. It's mysterious. It seems all pervasive. It has brought the world to its knees and made us all, in a way, sense our own vulnerability, our own weakness. There's so much uncertainty surrounding this pandemic. There are things that impact our lives that can frighten us, but that also come in silent and in undiscoverable ways. Now we speak of the pandemic, but we have been confronted in these last weeks with two seemingly unrelated realities, an international virus and an international protest against racism. The Archbishop of Washington, D.C., Wilton Gregory, himself an African-American man, has made a beautiful statement recently that I thought we could pray with as we speak with you, Jesus. He said, racism is a kind of virus, one that can be understood in similar terms to how we talk about COVID-19. And we can ask questions like, how did it develop? How does it get passed on? Is there a response that will protect us from it? It's a silent but deadly virus and is in the very air that we breathe. How do we find a vaccine? How do we protect ourselves from it? How do, we, how do we render it ineffective? Racism and corona, two viruses that have diseased our culture. These seem unrelated, but we can ask the question and examine our conscience. Do we have the same concern for both? Or rather, do we have an, um, an even greater, a much greater concern for racism, since it is in fact a moral disease and not merely physical or biological. How does our Lord see these things? Jesus, how do you understand these questions? With what attitude did you approach the racial and cultural divisions in your own time and place? For there certainly were. We know from that beautiful dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, that racism was alive and well. Now when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, right? So we know that between Galilee, where Jesus grew up, and Judea, where the capital, Jerusalem, was, 
there was this land of the Samaritans, Samaria. And Jesus often passed through this land to go from one place to another. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman asked him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And then John makes this aside. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This dialogue, as it begins, is already shocking. Right? It's shocking, and it would have shocked readers of the time to the core. Surprising for many reasons, because, well, first of all, Jesus was a man. This Samaritan was a woman. They were speaking directly to one another. Jesus was already overcoming a certain barrier, which treated women as inferior. Then there is, of course, the racial question. How is it that Jesus, a Jew, should even address himself directly to a Samaritan? Ancient Israel was divided along racial lines. Jews and Samaritans had an unfortunate history where they were in deep disagreement about, about the Jewish faith. And so they were essentially cut off from one another. And they, the Jews saw the Samaritans as inferior, as less worthy. This was also the case, we know, for the Jews and other races. We can remember, for example, that other scene with the Phoenician woman, so someone from basically Lebanon, a Lebanese lady, who Jesus also deals with directly, but there's clearly this racial tension between Jews and Gentiles. Lord, you break these barriers. In fact, they mean nothing to you. You have, in a sense, no problem speaking directly with the Samaritan woman because you see her in a different light. Your view of her, your gaze, is not clouded over or adulterated by these, by these considerations of race. Jesus is the fulfillment of the revelation of God, of who God is. He's also, in a sense, the revelation of who man is, who, who the human being is. Jesus reveals to man who he is, who he should be. We know that the human story began in Genesis 1, where God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right? This is basic Christian anthropology. Every person is created intentionally by God in his own divine image. Thus, every person, male and female, black and white, Every person is sacred and equally valuable. And so therefore, every form of racism, by definition, is to be rejected because it is not of God. In the scene there at the well, this endearing scene, such a beautiful scene, Jesus slowly 
builds up a kind of uh, confidence with this woman, and she gradually opens her soul to him. She says again, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God that Jesus is giving the Samaritan woman by the well? He is revealing to her her dignity as a daughter of God. The gift of God is his love to each one of us, his unconditional love without conditions, not placed upon our race, our sex, etc. Christianity is about the human person, the dignity of each human being, of each human life. This is a gospel imperative. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, and we can see how slavery, which was abundant throughout the ancient world in practically every civilization, it gradually crumbles away, for the most part, due precisely to the Christian good news, where each person was seen as as redeemed by the blood of Christ. Why do black lives matter? Because they, like every life, are made in the image and likeness of God. Each life has an infinite worth, each life, a black life, a white life, an Asian life. Each life is worth all the blood of Christ on the cross. Black lives matter because they are worth all the blood of Christ on the cross. You know, there's a subtle social conditioning, especially in the United States, that can lead us to think subtly, perhaps almost imperceptibly, that black lives matter less. We are the descendants of a country that has carried out terrible injustices. You know, Bishop Barron, he often calls racism America's original sin. Right? That, which is a beautiful image. Well, it's a stark image, not beautiful. It's a stark and telling image because the original sin right, of our first parents is something that has been passed down through the generations and it has marred our nature. To say America's original sin is to imply that this tendency, which is really at the root of, of our, our, our history as a nation, it is been subtly passed down through the generations, and it's something that we have to be very much on guard against. The Church has always spoken out against racism. The Catechism of the Catholic Church has beautiful passages uh, regarding this, the dignity and respect for each human being. If we are truly pro-life, then it is not a single issue pro-life stance, but rather we are pro-life in all of life's aspects. We are equally anti-racism as we are anti-abortion, and we should be just as vocal about it. From the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Social justice can be obtained only in respecting the transcendent dignity of the human being. The person represents the ultimate end of society, which is ordered to him. What is at stake is the dignity of the human person whose defense and promotion have been entrusted to us by the Creator.
and to whom the men and women at every moment of history are strictly and responsibly in debt. Respect for the human person entails respect for the rights that flow from his dignity as a creature. These rights are prior to society and must be recognized by it. Right? So our rights as human beings are not bestowed upon us by society, by a specific culture. No, they're previous to society. They're previous to the laws of the land. They're previous to whatever structure we find ourselves in, whatever system we find ourselves in. Our dignity is inherent. Our dignity is rooted in our nature as human beings. These rights are prior to society and must be recognized by it. They are the basis of the moral legitimacy of every authority. By flouting these rights or refusing to recognize them in its positive legislation, a society undermines its own moral legitimacy. If it does not respect them, authority can rely only on force or violence to obtain obedience from its subjects. It is the church's role to remind men of goodwill of these rights and to distinguish them from unwarranted or false claims. This is a lot to pray about. Lord, we are at a crossroads in our culture. Help us to, to discern, to examine our conscience, and to come up with resolutions for how to address this question in our culture. We have to begin with ourselves. St. Josemaria, he often spoke about the need for Christians to be leaven in society. This, of course, is, is a gospel image. It's an image from our Lord. Right? The kingdom of God is like that, that yeast in the dough. Each of us needs to be that leaven, that yeast, that little, little piece of yeast, that almost like imperceptible, that is thrown into the dough and that allows the mass to rise and become savory bread. Our culture right now is in need of, of yeast, of, of people who with their own lives, with their own example, spread the culture of, of acceptance, the culture of tolerance, the culture of love. We have to be aware of subtle ways in which we can be racist, subtle ways in which we can be intolerant. I don't know. Perhaps we don't do this ourselves, perhaps we hear sometimes people making subtle racist jokes or using racist epithets. If we tolerate that from our peers, we're somehow acknowledging that, they, that they're right, right, that black people are not made in the image and likeness of God, and this would be a sin. This is a sin that we need to confess. So much of the problem of racism is a lack of exposure to other people where we are not dealing with people outside of our immediate circle. Pope Francis, the Holy Father, has been inviting us ever since he became Pope to go out to the peripheries to deal with people outside of our little bubble. We should have black friends. We should be dealing with people of other races, of other walks of life. We are Catholic after all. We're universal. The same can be said of, of people of color of other races, have white friends. They deal with one another. I consider it a huge gift from God that one of my best friends growing up is black. 
In fact, he and I, we spent most of our childhood together. I grew up in a very white part of Boston, and yet I was fortunate to have this buddy of mine who grew up across the street from me and who I went to school with and who I spent most of my time with. We were close friends and we even ended up going to college together. We have been through many life events together. And I am so fortunate to have him because he taught me very early on that there is no difference between us. One telling moment in our relationship early on was watching how my father and his father would interact with one another. In a sense, I learned about my friend's, his name is Jordan, my friend Jordan's dignity from watching the friendship between my white dad and his black dad. I would watch them play basketball together. I would watch them hang out together. I would watch the esteem with which my father treated Jordan's dad, the respect that they had for one another, their friendship. And then, of course, it was easy for me to imitate and emulate that same respect in my dealings with Jordan. It's funny because we grew up across the street when we were very little, and then my family grew out of that house because there were so many of us, and so we moved to another part of town. And I thought, shoot, that's it, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to see Jordan as much. But then, lo and behold, I think really just two or three years later, his family also moved across the street from us again. And so we were reunited, and we spent the rest of our childhood as neighbors. This is a huge gift, exposure, right? being exposed to one another, dealing with people who are different from us, or who can seem different from us, but in reality are not. We need to be on guard of being in our little cocoon. Perhaps some of this police brutality, which is a, a sin that cries out to heaven, is because these policemen had really never known black people, had never had friends that were black. And so the black person is seen as other. The black person is seen as threat. And this is, this is unfortunate. St. Paul was very bold in his letters to the early Christians. We read in the letter to the Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What a radical statement. Right? The, this radical statement of the equal dignity of each human being in Christ Jesus. All of us, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all of us have been redeemed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are all brothers and sisters of the same family. Paul was saying this at a time when many Jews considered Greeks to be unclean, to be inferior. Again, we can think of the Samaritans. The Jews had no dealings with Samaritans because they were of a different status. In fact, some Jews claimed that God made the Gentiles so there would be firewood in hell. Many refused not only to speak to a Gentile, but even to look upon a Gentile in public. They would, they would shield their eyes from these other people. We know, too, that it was not a one-way street. For their part, the Gentiles persecuted the Jewish people across nearly their entire history. The Jews were enslaved by Egypt. They were attacked by the Canaanites and other surrounding tribes. 
They were destroyed by the Assyrians, enslaved by the Babylonians, ruled by the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. We know that the Roman Empire destroyed their temple in AD 70, disbanded their nation. And yet Paul is saying here that there is neither Jew nor Greek in the eyes of God. Such a radical statement. Christianity has this radical message for the world concerning racism. Lord, help us to approach this problem with a greater Christian ethos, with a greater Christian view. We can say with the Samaritan woman with great surprise and, and a kind of astonishment, Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria. Why are you looking at me with such love? Why are you looking at me with such empathy, with such understanding? Perhaps the Samaritan woman had never received a gaze of this sort, a gaze that penetrated to her very core and told her, you are worth all of my blood. You are made in the image and likeness of God. You have a dignity that no one can take away from you. George Floyd had a dignity, and that dignity was undermined by the brutal violence of, of, of the policemen. The killing of George Floyd, this is from the, the head of the Conference of Catholic Bishops, Bishop Gomez in, in Los Angeles. The killing of George Floyd was senseless and brutal, a sin that cries out to heaven for justice. How is it possible that in America, a black man's life can be taken from him while calls for help are not answered and his killing is recorded as it happens? I am praying for George Floyd and for his loved ones. And on behalf of my brother bishops, I share the outrage of the black community and those who stand with them in Minneapolis, Los Angeles, and across the country. The cruelty and violence he suffered does not reflect on the majority of good men and women in law enforcement, of course, so many good policemen out there, who carry out their duties with honor. And we know that. And we trust that civil authorities will investigate his killing carefully and make sure those responsible are held accountable. We should all understand that the protests we are seeing in our cities reflect the justified frustration and anger of millions of our brothers and sisters who even today experience humiliation, indignity, and unequal opportunity only because of their race or the color of their skin. It should not be this way in America. Racism has been tolerated for far too long in our way of life. It's true what Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said that riots are the language of the unheard. We should be doing a lot of listening right now. This time, we should not fail to hear what people are saying through their pain. We need to finally root out the racial injustice that still infects too many areas of American society. And so Lord, in our prayer, let's listen to, this is the message from the bishops of our country. Let's examine our conscience, each one of us, in the presence of God. We come before you, Lord, in this time of prayer, 
And we ask you to help us to be conscious of the pain, to be conscious of the pain that is being expressed right now through these protests and even through these riots. Be conscious of the pain. Don't cocoon ourselves, Lord, help us not to cocoon ourselves in the echo chamber of, of those around whom we normally surround ourselves. The echo chamber of our own comfort, the echo chamber of our own malaise, of our laziness, of our passivity. If we have had racist thoughts or prejudices, we need to confess them. We need to go to confession. Racism is a sin, and it is often a grave sin, a mortal sin, because it hits right at the heart of our moral life, which is the virtue of charity. We sometimes think that with the civil rights movement, racism has come to an end. It is, of course, true that the work of MLK and so many other civil rights leaders, many of them Catholic leaders, brought about incredible changes in American society. But there's still so much work to be done. There is still systemic racism in our culture. And so it's not enough for us to wash our hands and say, we're done. No, in a way, we're still just beginning. We have to have a higher intolerance for anything that smacks of racism. How are we that yeast in the leaven? How are we struggling to make the dough rise, to make the dough of our society truly alive with the love of Christ so that it rises to be healthy bread? Without that yeast, without that presence of Christians in society, then we can unfortunately approach these questions, these difficulties, not with the love of Jesus Christ, but simply with anger simply with violence. And this doesn't do anything. This only makes things worse. Perhaps that justified anger helps in a first moment to call attention to a problem. And this is what we're seeing, right? There's being a lot of attention called to a problem through, through peaceful protests, through civil disobedience, through, a, through gestures that are radical in nature in order to take a magnifying glass and point it right at the wound. And this is wonderful, this is important, this is a good sign. But it cannot end there. We have to move from this first moment of anger and indignation to positive change, to change that takes place at every level of society and every level of the, this structure of sin, we could say, so that it gets dismantled. We are the yeast. We've got to be yeast in the dough, and that yeast has to be active. What conversations are we having with our friends? How are we challenging those who are too passive? How are we reaching out beyond the peripheries of our own cocoon, of our own echo chamber, echo chamber to truly deal with other people? St. Josemaria, in forming the members of Opus Dei, he taught us, a way of evangelization, which is very effective and very natural. In a way, it was the evangelization of the first Christians, which is called the apostolate of friendship and confidence. What that means is that the gospel is spread most especially through individual dealings with people, through one-on-one -on -one interaction. 
We can kill racism through our friendships with people, by building up friendships with all sorts of people of all walks of life and teaching them their dignity through the love with which we, we deal with them, like the love of friendship. Lord, how would you approach the problems of today? We look to you. We look to you for light. Jesus, when he arrives on the scene in his public life, John the Baptist prepared the way for him. Jesus enters into the, the, the Holy Land. Right? He comes from Nazareth, and he begins to say, Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Right? Jesus is telling each of the, us this now. Repent. This has always been our way. We always go back to repent again. Lord, show us our brokenness. Show us the ways in which we have failed when it comes to the love of our brothers and sisters, when it comes to this problem of systemic racism. Show us our brokenness. Help us to repent and believe in you once again. Believe in this love that you have come to show us, this radical love, this unconditional love of God the Father. With the Samaritan woman, we look at Jesus astonished. How is it that you are asking me for a drink? I am a Samaritan. You are a Jew. We are astonished at the way in which Jesus acts. We also want to break down those barriers. We also want to get rid of these, of these tensions, of these divisions. We can finish by turning to Our Lady, as we always do in our times of prayer. Mother of God, Mother Mary, our mother, we say, Mater Noster, our mother, the mother of the universal church. She is the new Eve. Right? That's how the early fathers of the church understood Mary. She is the new Eve because like Eve from the, from the beginning of our story, Mary has become the mother of all humanity. Right? She has become the mother of the church. It's beautiful when we look at the history of Catholicism as it develops that Mary, the Virgin, with her child, is depicted in so many different races, really in all of the races of the world, because each culture identifies her as their mother. Right? Each Christian, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their language, regardless of time and place, they look to Mary and they see their own mother. Jesus wanted it this way. At the foot of the cross, he looked to John and he told him, Behold your mother, Eche Mater Tua. My mother is now yours. And she has become, therefore, the mother of all, the mother of all humanity. This, of course, helps us to see one another as brothers and sisters. We can pray before Our Lady, regardless of the color of her skin. We are preparing a, a road trip out to Montana in a couple of days. And uh, to prepare for the trip, we've been, we've been using an image of Our Lady, uh, praying to her, and she's dressed as a Hopi Indian, right? She and the baby, the baby's in a papoose, and she is depicted as a woman of the Hopi tribe. And in a way, it's helping us to connect with the culture of the West. We're going out West, and we want to unite ourselves to the people of those places. This is the attitude of a Catholic, right? the Catholic who sees the church as universal and who sees Our Lady as the mother of all. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations 
that you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.